So if you want to turn to uh, John chapter 20, uh, hold your place at verse 24. We'll look there in just a second. We are entering the home stretch of our series in the Gospel of John, the series that we've called Jesus Speaks, uh, that has looked at the words of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. And uh, we come today to one of the more famous stories in the Bible, the story of Jesus and his disciple Thomas. And Thomas need to verify for himself the accuracy of what the other disciples had been claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, in most of your Bibles, there's going to be a simple heading on this section that says something along the lines of Jesus appears to Thomas. But that's not the heading that pops up in most of our brains when we come to this story, and Thomas probably wishes that it was. Unfortunately for Thomas, this story has resulted in him forever being known as Doubting Thomas. And so that's probably the heading that most of us see in our brains when we come to the story, Doubting Thomas. And it seems a bit unfair to me that he has been labeled with this name. I mean, all of the disciples who were present when the women first reported the resurrection of Jesus, all of them responded by acting as though the women were speaking nonsense. So doubt was a pretty widespread reaction among the disciples in those early hours after the resurrection of Jesus, but none of the other disciples have been forever tagged with this doubting label. Only Thomas has had uh, that great privilege placed uh, upon him. Uh, It seems unfair to Thomas to me, but before I say more about that, let's just go ahead and read the account that's recorded for us in John chapter 20, uh, 24 through 31. I'll read and you follow along as I do. Here's what it says. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's review a few facts of this situation. First, Thomas was one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the twelve. And like the rest of them, he had never really understood, had not really grasped what Jesus was saying whenever Jesus would say that he must die and that he would rise again on the third day. As I've already mentioned, Thomas was not unique in initially being skeptical of the resurrection. All the disciples were initially skeptical when the women came with a report of the resurrection. Now, the Apostle John 
had believed upon seeing the risen, uh, I'm sorry, upon seeing the empty tomb, but before he had seen the risen Jesus, but the rest of Jesus' disciples had not believed until Jesus had personally appeared to them the evening after the morning of his resurrection. Unfortunately for Thomas, he had not been there with them at that time. We're not told where he was. We're not told why he wasn't there. We're just told that he wasn't among them. Thomas has had a reputation for about 2,000 years now for being obstinate because he said to the other disciples that he would not believe unless he could see the nail marks, touch them, and touch the wound in Jesus' side. But if you really think about it, Essentially, all Thomas was asking for was to receive the same evidence that the other disciples had received in order to believe. That's essentially what he was doing. I don't think that's being obstinate. I think that's being fairly reasonable. If Andrew Lang comes to me this morning after service and he says, Brian, there was a cashier's check for $50,000 in the offering this morning... I am going to say, show me, show me. Now understand, Andrew Lang is a trustworthy man. He's an honest man. I trust him. But if he tells me something I have never seen before has happened, though I trust his word, I'm going to want to verify it before I get too excited. And that's just for $50,000 in the offering, a much less miraculous thing than Jesus rising from the dead. Well, actually, it might be harder to believe that than that Jesus rose from the dead, but you understand my point. I don't think Thomas is being obstinate here at all. He simply is asking for essentially the same evidence his fellow disciples have received. I think that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. If you really put yourself in Thomas' shoes, consider his circumstances, consider all the factors of of this situation, I, I think it's very reasonable. I mean, first of all, you have the whole thing of people don't rise from the dead. He, 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 he has to deal with that. Yes, Jesus had brought Lazarus back from the dead. That's true. He had raised Jairus' daughter. That's true. But these were hardly normal occurrences. We have little idea how the disciples actually processed those events, what they thought about them as time went on. And so this remained something that was totally outside the experience of Christ's followers. Not only that, but they had not understood when Jesus predicted he would die and rise again. So this was not an outcome that they were expecting at all. As I've mentioned, Thomas had not seen the empty tomb. He had not been privileged in that way. And he had not been privileged to be present when Jesus appeared among the disciples. And so to this point in the story, he had not personally experienced any of the evidence that the others had experienced. You can call that obstinate if you want, but I think it's very reasonable. Thomas had reasonable cause to question what he had been told. He had reasonable cause to doubt what was being proclaimed. I think his questions are honest, reasonable, and completely understandable. And I'm glad that this account is in the Bible. 
I'm glad that it's part of the history uh, of the events surrounding the resurrection. Because like Thomas, I've sometimes had questions. And I have sometimes had doubts. If you're here today and you have honest questions and doubts about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, about the resurrection, that's okay. That's okay. You are in good company. And I think this reveals something very important. And I think it reveals something very encouraging for those of us who have doubted, are currently doubting, or at some point in the future will doubt. It reveals that Jesus is not offended by honest questions and doubts. God isn't put off because you have honest questions about him. He's not put off because you have some honest doubts. God is not fragile like that. He made you. He knows how you're wired. He, he made you the rational person that you are or the semi-rational person that you are. He understands that sometimes the things that he does stretch you, cause you some questions, cause you some doubts, and he can handle it. He can handle it. Now, I think it has to be noted here that not all questions and doubts are honest, reasonable, or understandable. Sometimes people do become obstinate, that they refuse to believe for a variety of lousy excuses. But that being true doesn't change that Jesus will work with people who have honest questions and doubts who simply need some help in order to believe. We see in these verses how Jesus responded to Thomas. And we find in these verses, I believe, the way that Jesus responds to all of us, even today, who have honest questions and doubts. First of all, I believe this reveals to us that he responds gently. He responds gently. Now, I've gone on record many times, and if you've been around here very long, you've heard me say that I do not think Jesus is the doting grandfather of common perception who always pats us on the head and tells us what good boys and good girls we are. I don't think he's like that. I don't think Jesus always spoke in a soft whisper like a PBS radio anchor. I don't think that he did that. I think that Jesus raised his voice sometimes. We know that he was confrontational uh, often, but I believe he dealt gently with Thomas here. I do not hear his voice booming with anger or disgust when he says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side. I do not hear him saying, stop your doubting and believe, you ridiculous follower. I I just don't see any of that. I don't hear it that way. The way that I read it, the way that I hear it is like you might imagine a patient teacher or mentor explaining some complex issue to a pupil. It's not loud, it's not railing, it's not disgust. The main reasons I hear it this way are because, first of all, Jesus provides the evidence that Thomas needs. If this is an unfair question, does he provide the evidence or not? I, I don't know. 
but, but he provides the evidence. I, I think he recognizes this is a legitimate need that Thomas has. And secondly, though it's often been read differently, Jesus does not rebuke him for asking this. And throughout this message, I want to address both of those. So in response to Thomas' questions and doubts, Jesus speaks directly to Thomas, speaks gently to Thomas, I believe, and he provides the evidence that Thomas requested. He provides the evidence that Thomas needed. We're told that Thomas articulated exactly what he needed. I need to see the nail prints in his hands and touch them. I need to touch the wound in his side. And then Jesus comes along and provides exactly what Thomas said that he needed. Now, I'll talk more about this in a few minutes, but I believe that Jesus is still doing this. He is still providing the evidence that people need in order to believe. He doesn't do it exactly as he did with Thomas, but he still does it. Thomas needed evidence. I need evidence. You need evidence. There's a common misperception out there that faith is believing something against all odds, contrary to all available evidence, that faith is a leap in the dark. But friends, that is not true at all. Certainly there are times when God calls us to step out in obedience and uh, do something that we don't fully understand, we don't know how it's going to work out in the end. Uh, Certainly God calls us to do those things. But when it comes to placing faith in the person and work of Christ, when it comes to entrusting your future to the resurrected Lord as your Savior and your God, God does not ask us to believe based on nothing. He doesn't ask us to believe without evidence. He does not ask us to take a leap in the dark. He provides us with evidence. He did it for Thomas. He's done it for many people in this room. And if you are asking honest questions and have honest doubts, he'll do the same for you. For Thomas, the evidence was seeing the resurrected Jesus. It was being able to personally verify the wounds in his hands and side. Now, we're not told if Thomas actually touched Jesus' hands or side, but we are told that he saw the resurrected Lord and he believed. So Jesus responds to honest questions and doubts gently. He responds by providing evidence. And then once evidence has been provided that objectively satisfy the questions, that objectively resolve the doubts, he then calls for belief. This is what we see with Thomas. Responds gently, provides the evidence, and then Jesus called Thomas To believe. Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting, and believe. Thomas' questions and doubts are understandable, they are reasonable. So Jesus responds gently, lovingly, provides the evidence, but now the evidence has been provided, and Jesus calls for belief. Up to this point, there has been nothing wrong with Thomas' questions and his doubts. But now his very reasonable questions have been answered. His understandable need for evidence has been satisfied. The basis for doubt has been removed. 
And now it's time to believe, and so Jesus calls for it, stop doubting and believe. If at this point, Thomas had still refused to believe, I believe he would have moved from having honest questions to just being obstinate. He he would have moved from genuinely needing some evidence to denying truth. And if you would allow me to just gently and respectfully say to you today that I think there are some, perhaps, in this room who are at this point. You have had honest and understandable questions about God. You have needed evidence. You have presented your questions to God. God has provided you with evidence. Maybe not everything that you would like, as none of us have the advantage Thomas and those early disciples did, but he has provided you with enough evidence to make faith reasonable and compelling, but you, as of yet, have not believed. If that is true for you, I think Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is saying the same thing to you today as he said to Thomas that day. He is saying, stop doubting and believe. It's time. I've given you the evidence that you sought. I've answered your questions. Believe. Believe. If that's true for you today, I hope that you will hear his voice. I hope that you will respond to his voice and that you will believe. Thomas did. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Fairly or unfairly, he is the most notorious doubter and this most notorious doubter of the resurrection believed. And he offered this great confession of the risen Christ. He is Lord, he is God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. This is the conclusion that the evidence led Thomas to. This was the only response that he could rightly give because it was the only response that the evidence would support. He he gives Jesus this loftiest title that can ever come from human lips. And ever since this has been the central affirmation of the church concerning Jesus, the resurrected Savior is Lord And he is God. And notice that Jesus does not correct Thomas. He accepts being worshipped as God because he is God. Friends, this is the conclusion that the evidence still leads us to. It is still the only conclusion that the evidence supports. Your questions are okay. Your doubts are understandable. I mean, it is a lot to take in. It's quite a bit that we're asked by God to believe. So God understands, and he is patient with our questions. But make no mistake, this is where the evidence leads. This is the only conclusion that the evidence supports. Jesus is risen. Jesus is Lord Jesus is God. You say, but I don't know how I can believe. Jesus isn't 
still providing the same evidence that he did to Thomas. I can't physically see the risen Lord. I can't touch the wounds in his hands or on his side. Thomas had an advantage that I don't have. And you're absolutely right. He did. And so did the other disciples. They had an advantage that we do not have. Jesus recognized that fact in the moment of the story. And he addressed it. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I don't believe for a second that Jesus is scolding Thomas here. I think he is just very simply, very matter-of-factly pointing out that Thomas is privileged in a way that few were or ever would be. I don't hear in this a rebuke. He simply calls blessed those who believe even though they don't have the advantage of seeing the resurrected Lord. He's emphasizing their blessing, not scolding Thomas. Every single one of us here today who have believed on the Lord Jesus, Jesus says, you're blessed. You you haven't had the privileged evidence that Thomas received and the disciples received, but based on the available and convincing evidence that you do have, you have believed, and Jesus says, you are blessed because of it. While we don't receive the exact same evidence Thomas did, we do receive evidence. We receive persuasive evidence. We receive compelling evidence. And remember that even among the disciples, there was evidence of faith before seeing the resurrected Lord. John believed upon seeing the empty tomb, but before he had seen Jesus uh, resurrected. John is an example of those who believe based on solid evidence, but without the evidence of seeing the resurrected Christ. Friends, even though we don't have the same privilege Thomas had, there is plentiful evidence to lead us to faith. Look at verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written all that he has about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in order to provide for all who would come after him, including you and I, evidence that would lead to faith. Gary Burge writes, John has provided us with a record of signs that serve a similar persuasive capacity as Thomas seeing Jesus and being offered to touch his wounds. While not having what Thomas did, we have his story, and this gives us reasonable grounds for belief. The evidence that they had was up close. We look at the evidence from afar, but it is still good evidence. What John has provided us with is a historical record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of these events. Their testimony is sufficient to make belief not only defensible, but reasonable, and I would say even compelling. Let's just consider some of the evidence uh, that we have that should lead us 
to faith. First of all, the tomb was and is and always will be empty. I mean, even skeptics agree the tomb was empty. They, they, they argue over why it was empty, but everybody agrees the tomb was empty. That's, that's not debatable. The tomb was empty. Here's, here's one of the things that to me is so compelling. People who were initially skeptical of the resurrection came to believe because they simply could not deny the evidence that was standing in front of them. Every single one of them were skeptical until they just couldn't be skeptical anymore. And one of the most compelling ones for me is Jesus' own brother, James, who was extremely skeptical until he just could not deny what was true. Now, imagine what James has had to do. James has had to embrace the reality that his sibling is not just the savior of Israel. His sibling who he grew up with is Lord and God. Now wrap your brain around have to like come to grips with that. I love my brother. I really do. But if someone tried to convince me he was Lord and God, nah, I'm not going along with that. I just, I just, I just don't see it. James saw it. He finally saw it. How convinced do you have to be to believe your sibling is God? He spent the rest of his life preaching about Jesus, claiming that Jesus was risen, that he is Lord, that he is God. It's compelling. We have the eyewitness testimonies of John and Mark and Matthew and Peter and Paul, and the list goes on and on. One of our members this week, Ashley Hunt, posted a a quote on social media from Harvard Law professor Dr. Simon Greenleaf that I thought was so good and, and just so right that I wanted to share it. He He said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law today, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection than for just about any other event in history. The book that we gave out last week and offered again today, it's a pretty simple read. It's a pretty pretty short book, but it, it offers very compelling evidence for believing in the resurrection. We have the whole Bible that testifies to this. This book that in spite of the many lies that are told by people who refuse to believe it, this book is the most uh, reliable historical book that you're ever going to hold in your hands. That there are more manuscripts of the Bible that are written closer to the actual events that they talk about than almost any other work of ancient history. I think I can go so far as to say than any other work of ancient history. On top of all of that, we have the testimony of literally millions upon millions of believers throughout the last 2,000 years who all say that they have encountered the risen Lord themselves, and not only that, but that he has changed their life. A dead person in a tomb doesn't change your life. A risen Lord who you encounter changes your life. And that's the testimony of millions of people. 
The list can go on and on. I commend that book to you. The evidence is there if you are willing to approach it and seek it out honestly. When you come to it openly and honestly, willing to follow wherever the evidence leads, the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth to you. He will give you the gift of faith and he will confirm in your spirit that the story John and the other gospel writers tell us is absolutely true. No, we don't get the same evidence Thomas did, but we get plenty of evidence to believe. We get persuasive and compelling evidence, and Jesus calls us blessed if we choose to believe the evidence. Friends, there is enough evidence available to us for Jesus to say to each and every one of us here today the same thing that he said to Thomas that day, stop doubting and believe. I'm appealing to you. I've, I've given you the evidence. Now stop doubting and believe. Whether you're here having never placed your faith in Jesus or whether you're a believer who has hit some doubts in your walk with the Lord, there's, there's something that, that you used to, to embrace that you're struggling to continue to believe. Well, whatever your starting point is, John writes to strengthen faith. It makes no difference what your starting point is. Friends, the evidence is strong. It leads to one conclusion. Jesus is Lord and God. So I appeal to you today. Stop doubting and believe. Why don't you stand?